The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. Glenn Beck. It's Monday, October 22nd. You're listening to the Glenn Beck Program. All right. Hello, America. Welcome to the program. Election just a few weeks away. And I'm afraid that both sides could become complacent because both sides now are revved up unlike we've ever seen before. It's all going to be about turnout. Who actually, when the day comes, says, yeah, I'm going to go vote. And how many are just revved up now for, you know, valid reasons, but then say, eh, I, you know, speaking out is enough and not going out to vote. It's interesting because uh, we've seen these turnout numbers. Uh, generally, they, they've been applying lately to presidential elections. Since 2000, we've seen a massive jump in the amount of people who are super passionate and paying attention at high levels to presidential campaigns. That's certainly what happened with Barack Obama in 2008 and 2012. Uh, and it's also... Um, one of the things we've noticed is in the off years, that doesn't happen all that much. Mid Midterm elections do not seem to inspire, particularly among Democrats recently, the amount of passion uh, that uh, has been cu- coming from the right. You remember 2010, the Tea Party wave, the biggest wave election in a century, basically. 2014 was also a little mini, you know, sort of Tea Party related wave. Uh, where the candidates weren't maybe as much Tea Party, but they were still a pretty strong year you know, for Republicans in 2014. In, in 2006, you saw the opposite. You saw Democrats uh, in the, the last uh, years of the Bush administration have a really strong midterm in 2006. But, you know, generally speaking, people aren't as passionate. The numbers, however, for this midterm election are off the charts. And it's interesting, Glenn was pointing out before uh, the show that when Barack Obama was a sort of celebrity presidential candidate, and he would have these huge rallies in 2008. And you remember the one in Denver. I mean, he was the first one. Well, he was one. a god. He yeah, was a yeah. rock. It yeah. was like watching U2. Right. It's like, right. remember the Roman? Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, it was pillars. literally like a rock star. Yeah. And then it just disappeared. Mm-hmm. And if you remember, by midterms, you had these huge turnouts in the street. But no one was going to see the president in those stadiums and arenas. They still would book the arena. But I remember distinctly covering them saying, turn the camera around. And they were half empty rooms. Yeah. The passion was gone. Gone. Uh, into, uh, we are not seeing that with Trump. I mean, they, these rallies seem to be as well attended as they were during the campaign. If not more so. Sometimes more so, right? There's supposed to be a huge one here, I think, for Ted Cruz tonight. Uh, they are Texas. they've already they've camped out overnight the the line to the stadium is blocks long yeah. and people have camped out overnight so there's no drop in the passion seemingly among republicans and the same thing seems to be happening with democrats as much as it uh is a positive for uh for republicans to keep those crowds one of the reasons why people are passionate is because the other side's so passionate, and we're mm-hmm. seeing we're going to see go through some of that mob stuff that's going on mm-hmm. right now with Republicans. But the numbers are interesting on this. If you look at the uh, passion among Republicans and Democrats, you kind of can see what happened in the election. Again, we talked about uh, 2006, big win for Democrats. Well, when we went into that election, 
69% of Democrats said they had uh, the highest levels of interest in the election. 69%. Republicans, it was only 56%. And Republicans got smoked. 2010, uh, you had a 66% Republican uh, percentage of people who were really interested in the election. Only 49% of Democrats. Democrats got smoked. Um, you said same thing, 2014. Remember, Democrats got smoked again there. Republicans, 59% uh, said they were really interested. Only 48% of Democrats said that. Um, and mm-hmm. what's interesting is leading up to, I would say, Brett Kavanaugh, you had the same type of thing playing out again, in this time in favor of the Democrats. It started to look a lot like 2006. So up until Kavanaugh, you had 63% of Democrats, highest levels uh, of interest in the election. Republicans was only 53%. Mm-hmm. So that is, uh, you know, a big, it's the type of gap that leads you to lose the Senate mm-hmm. and lose the House, mm-hmm. or at least makes it possible. Mm-hmm. Since Kavanaugh, that has changed. Democrats have gone up from 63 to 72%. Holy cow. 72 is the highest number for any party in all of these elections. However, Republicans have jumped uh, a higher per- percentage point basis from 53 to 68. So now we have a, basically a balance, uh, a very close within the margin of error separation. And both of those numbers, 68, would be the second highest level of interest of all of these elections. So the Democrats are at 72. Republicans are at 68. Both of those numbers are the highest of any of these elections going back to 2006, mid, the 2006 midterms. Um, and I mean, which is which is crazy. It is a uh, uh, we there's a level here that we don't know what's going to happen. Uh, <laughs> yeah. This is we, this is like, you know, this is territory that has not been seen before. And, you know, while you can look at the polls and you can see the polls, as we've talked about over the past couple of weeks, relatively you know, are relatively pointing towards a Republican mm. uh, victory in the Senate where they maybe pick up a couple of seats and a Republican loss in the House where they would lose a couple of seats. Um, there is a, you know, if you want to look at the kind of the optimistic way of looking at the House right now to show you how close this is, if Republicans were to sweep the races they are favored in, okay, that's, that's not going to happen. It never happens. But just kind of generally for understanding, if they were to be able to sweep all of the races they're favored in uh, and they were to be able to win all of the races that they trail by one point. So all of these races are either victories or toss-ups, right? I mean, they could go either way. But if they were to sweep all of those, Republicans still hold the House at 220 to 215. Mm. Now, the problem is the idea that they're going to sweep all those races is we know that's not going to happen. It never happens. The other thing is they will win some races where they're underdogs by more than one point. Mm -hmm. They will win some, you know, when they're down by five in the polls, they'll Mm -hmm. wind up winning some of those races. So the split is going to be important here. But just that gets them only to 220 to 215, which is a, I think they lose, that's them losing 10 seats from where they are now, um, but also a very narrow majority to the point where some conservative things could be derailed by just, you know, your generic moderate House member that you've never heard their name before um, when they decide they're going to vote against uh, the president. So it's an interesting uh, way of looking at it. And it shows that this really could go either way. I mean, when they say that there's about a 20% chance the Republicans lose the Senate and about a 20% chance the the Republicans win the House, that's the way the, these models are all mm-hmm. kind of looking at it. 20% is one in five, right? Um, so it is very possible that one of these things could happen. 
Uh, but right now, it looks like those are going to wind up getting split. And then, of course, I, still has me, even though you're not going to be able to pass Democratic bills because they would either get vetoed or overturned mm-hmm. in the House, you're still going to have investigative power. You're going to have subpoena power. You're going to have impeachment. Oh, it's a talks. nightmare. It's yeah, a, yeah. a nightmare mm-hmm. if if they get the House. It's a nightmare. OK, so here's here's what I found interesting in um, in watching the news and watching just the flow of it. Have you noticed that, you know, places like the Atlantic and the Times and the Post are now starting to publish stories about, you know, it's an uphill battle to win some of these races in the House. It's an uphill battle. They have changed their tone from, um, you know, an absolute positive, oh, we're on a blue wave, to now almost laying the foundation of, yeah, we we lost, but it was, you know, it was really kind of a long shot anyway. Yeah. I mean, I that's how badly I think the Kavanaugh thing uh has backfired on them. I mean, it's made the Senate basically uh, I mean, again, I just said it's one out of five chance, but I mean, they had a they had a better chance of this uh, 2 months ago. I mean, they had a, a legitimate path to victory. When Cruz was only up by 3 points, all of these races that looked like leaning Republican were all toss up and some of them looked like they might be leaning Democrat. They had a chance to win the Senate before the Kavanaugh thing. Now, I mean, I think it's a real, a real. It's really going to come to the independents. How are the independents feeling? Uh, They're an interesting group because they are not as passionate as you would expect in this environment. So independents in 2006 and 2010 were at 50 percent. Now, independents are almost always going to be lower in high interest mm-hmm. than partisans because partisans engage more like typically mm-hmm. um that's not of course a blanket rule but it's typical um in 2014 it was down to 40 percent and 2018 up until kavanaugh was 42 percent and then uh the jump now to 46 percent so still that's not as high as some of the earlier elections among independents and that may just be because they're overwhelmed with it and they don't they don't like either side and they, they just want it makes them want to withdraw from politics. Yeah, but I wonder because I would consider myself an independent. Yeah. And there's no way you're going to keep me away from the polls. And so I'm wondering, you know, with that four percent jump, was it a four percent jump yeah. or two percent, four percent jump? Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder how much of that are people like me who are going to vote for the yeah. Republican just because the left has gone insane. Right. And there's a lot of independents that I de- I mean, I certainly would fall into this category as well. Right. I, I am not a registered member of any party, nor will I ever be in right. my entire life. Likewise. I, that being said, uh, you know, I vote Republican. I mean, I, you know, don't vote for Democrats. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? So I, I mean, vote for Republicans, I'll, independents and libertarians. And libertarians. I, I don't vote for Democrats. But yeah, I mean, so that's never going to happen. So the fact that I'm an independent, you can't look at that line as. These are people who could go either way at any time between these two parties. That's not what that is. Right. It's people who identify that way. It's a group that's that's growing and has been growing for quite some time. Yes. Uh, people are bailing out of the parties, mm-hmm. um, but the parties themselves are becoming uh, more rigid and, and right. more. Partisan. This one could come down to the independents. Mm-hmm. This one could come down to because you can understand the Republicans going up you can understand if you're on the democratic side kavanaugh driving all those people but what's driving the independent mm. yeah uh, it, it, i mean i would think they're disgusted with what's going on right <laughs> if, if anything uh they don't like the overall 
system. There's one other interesting stat in here, Glenn, if we could. Yeah. Um, as we're talking about the caravan of uh, uh, immigrants coming, migrants, whatever, oh. uh, which will will be illegal immigrants if they mm-hmm. if they get it all the way here. Oh, uh, uh, by the way, who who said mm-hmm. that was coming? Uh... Oh, yeah, this this program. Yeah, yeah no, you, <laughs> definitely. We talked a lot about that. A lot about this. Uh, interesting to see the numbers among Latino voters. So uh, in 2006, we're coming off of the attempt at comprehensive immigration reform Mm -hmm. that fails. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Republicans very upset Mm -hmm. about that. Democrats win that election relatively easily. Um, uh, Latinos at 62 percent high interest in the election. That number in midterm elections has been dismal since in in 2010 was only 48 percent. 2014, it was 41 percent. Very low Uh, in 2018, up until very recently. Uh, it was it was at forty seven percent. That number has now jumped in October two thousand eighteen to seventy one percent, from forty seven to seventy one this year. So this is uh, whatever the reason. Wow, it's hi- much higher it's... than two thousand six for Latino voters. Wow, uh, and again, that was a wave election for Democrats. It's I mean these the numbers only are... thing I can think of mm-hmm. is the Guatemalan refugees. What else has happened? I mean, you did have also uh, fairly recently the uh, uh, unaccompanied minors situation where they were being, quote unquote, held in cages. Yeah, but that was in July or August. Yeah, but still relatively recently. Yeah. Um, uh, You know, the the 2018 polls were taken January to September. So some of those polls were before that, some after. Okay. Um, All the October ones, obviously, after and then include the migrant uh, caravan situation and that might explain the jump but it's it's high everywhere i mean it with the only place it's low um and it's not low relative to normal which is our younger voters 18 to 34 they're at 51 percent, which is the lowest number on most of these democratic demographic groups that you can find however it's also a lot higher than any other time in all of these elections. The highest they had been before that was 39 percent oh in 2006. God. This is so going, this is our whole lives now. This is going to be interesting. It is. Yeah, it's that, like it's like, you know, back in the 90s, the opening of Star Wars. Yeah, it's this is now what people care about and they care about it in almost a, a cultural entertainment sort of way. Yeah, which is, I think, fascinating, not necessarily healthy. Mm-mm. It's good that people care about these things. But, yeah. you know, I don't think that people a lot of people don't seem to care about them, about the issues as much as they do about just the passionate disagreement with whoever they're on Facebook with. We have Ben Sass joining us uh, in about 40 minutes from now. A lot of questions for Ben Sass. He has poked a hornet's nest uh, and um, and he's standing fast. I have a lot of questions for Ben Sass. That's coming up in about 40 minutes. Uh, also, Larry Sharp is here. He's running for governor of New York. He'll be joining us in hour three. Let me tell you about American finance. Home sales slow down heading into the fall, but not for first-time home buyers. They actually account for 55% of the mortgages originated. Now, to keep up with the first-time home buyers entering the market, you can uh, you need a reliable lender that can process your loan quickly. At American Financing, they offer dedicated mortgage consultants and an in-house underwriting team to secure your financing for your dream home as soon as possible. They've been in business since 99. They have stellar reviews from Google and BBB and Zillow. So what are you waiting for? If you're a first-time buyer, these are the people that are going to help you get that loan 
quickly and the right loan for you. Call American Financing at 800-906-2440, 800-906-2440, or online at AmericanFinancing.net, AmericanFinancing.net. American Financing Corporation, NMLS 182334, www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. I want to talk a little bit about Saudi Arabia and what's happening with... Uh, this Khashoggi case, it it really. It, it, have you noticed anybody who says anything other than "Oh, Khashoggi, oh the great one, Khashoggi, oh Khashoggi"? With the exception of uh, I hear his name forty-seven different ways in that sentence. No, I have not heard any. <laughs> so it's it's amazing to me how if you speak out, you're a conspiracy theorist. Now. Hold on just a second. Since when is reporting a fact? Since when is quoting him a conspiracy? I mean, I guess it seems like the accusation is if you're trying to say that he's ever done anything that's questionable in his life, you're making excuses for his murder, which, of course, is not true. That is not. No, no, that's different. That's different. That's that's the people who are tweeting and saying, uh, oh, so he deserved to die. No, 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 no. This is a horrible crime committed by a horrible state who is not our ally. Perhaps we need them. I don't know. I don't like getting into these situations. I wish we weren't there at all. But this was a crime and it was despicable, disgusting, brutal I mean, unbelievable to people in the West, but it happened, and I have no doubt that the prince was behind it. Okay. That has no bearing on who he was. We can say that this was a despicable, horrible crime done by the Saudis, and they're horrible people for X, Y, Z. And we can say Khashoggi did not deserve to die this way, Nobody deserves to die that that way. However, he's not the guy that everybody in the press is making him out to be. He's not some freedom-loving guy. He's a member of the Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood that he was pushing for was an Islamic state. He wants an Islamic state in his own writings in the Washington Post says, yeah, we have to have uh, an Islamicist rule. If you dismiss as Islamicist rule under Sharia law, then you'll never have peace in the Middle East. Well, wait a minute. I'm not against Islam. I am against Islamic rule. Sharia law. Tell me where it's working out. Show it to me. Where is that working out? Where is that protecting human rights? No, thank you. I mean, Islamic rule just by another group of Islamists is what you have in Saudi Arabia. No, thank you. I want to give some of the facts of of this guy. And it's not a conspiracy. There was a conspiracy to commit murder. To hide it. And we have found that. Now America needs some adults in the room to say, okay, 
That's a separate issue. But let's not paint Khashoggi into some freedom-loving prince because that's not true. I want to talk a little bit about this back and forth with Saudi Arabia because it is important that we get this right and we don't make this about American politics. We should make this about American interests, but not American politics. Right now, people are saying, I can't believe Donald Trump would. Well, you know what? George Bush, Bill Clinton, the second George Bush, all the way back, all the way back to FDR. We have been in bed with the Saudis. I don't like this. I think we're in bed with really bad people. Is a rattlesnake a bad pet? I was asked of me once, and I love this. Is a rattlesnake, is it a bad pet? The answer is no. It's a perfectly fine pet. As long as you always remember it as a rattlesnake or a snake and not a little puppy dog. It's a rattlesnake. It's not a bad pet. Just don't pet it. And don't try to fashion a a leash around its neck. Take it for a walk. It ain't going to do it. So, how do we handle Saudi Arabia? Well, it should be the same way we handle Turkey. But we're not. Because we're looking at Turkey and Saudi Arabia with American eyes. Stop it. These are both Islamic states. Now, they're warring with each other. Why? Because one is Muslim Brotherhood and one is a Wahhabist. They don't like each other. They want death for everybody in the other state. They want the regime of Saudi Arabia, <clears throat> Saudi Arabia stopped, <clears throat> Turkey, because they're Muslim Brotherhood. <clears throat> and Saudi Arabia wants Turkey stopped because they're Wahhabists. We're being put in the middle of a fight between two Islamicists. Both of them want the caliphate. Both of them want Islamic rule. Both of them want to rule uh, with jihad, and they also want to rule with Sharia law. We don't. We don't want either of those. So now let's put this into perspective. Saudi Arabia, horrible place. Horrible, 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 horrible place. They execute kids. As long as you've shown any kind of signs of puberty, you're tried as an adult. They execute through beheading. There was a woman who was raped, gang raped by seven men. Not sure if one of them was Supreme Court Justice Kavanaugh yet. Uh, But a Saudi woman was gang raped by seven men. They each got, you know, between two and nine years in prison. However, she she received six months in prison and 200 lashings with a whip. Because she was in the car without a without her husband. And then she dared to take her story to the media. This is the kind of people that we are dealing with. The crown prince. You and I are not going to like this guy. 
You can say, oh, look at what he's doing. He's, he's making it easier for women to drive without their husband. Yeah, okay, yeah, sure, sure, sure. He's still a Wahhabist. Let's look at what both sides in this country have done. We are currently fighting a proxy war with Saudi Arabia. We are involved in their war in Yemen. Did you even know that? President Trump announced a $110 billion arms deal with Saudi Arabia last year. It was President Obama that vetoed a bill that allowed families of 9-11 victims to sue the Saudi government. So both sides, everybody is in protecting these guys. When the crown prince came here to America, he met with Donald Trump. Oh, my gosh. But he also met with Oprah Winfrey, Bill and Hillary Clinton, Chuck Schumer, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, for some unknown reason, Barack Obama, John Kerry, Condoleezza Rice, George W. Bush, Henry Kissinger, Michael Bloomberg, Thomas Friedman from The New York Times, Bill Gates, Madeleine Albright, Rupert Murdoch, Jeffrey Goldberg from The Atlantic, Tim Cook, Elon Musk, Peter Thiel, Alan Garber from Harvard, Bob Iger, and Jeff Bezos. So they're all meeting with him. They're all meeting. Let's not pretend we don't know who this guy is. Now, the guy who went missing, he's a reporter for the Washington Post. Is he? Is he? Or does he have a point of view that Washington happens to like about uh, uh, Saudi Arabia? And that is the Muslim Brotherhood perspective. So you remember the Muslim Brotherhood founded in the 1920s in Egypt. The only reason for being was to reject the West and establish global Sharia law. They exported this organization all over the Middle East. Anti-Semitism towards uh, Jews, their biggest and most effective tool at harnessing the Arab rage. Muslim Brotherhood, they're the ones who invented modern-day jihadism. They are the ones who inspired Osama bin Laden and the other founding members of Al-Qaeda. To any administration uh, member from the Obama administration, you cannot call them a largely secular organization when you read just their motto. Allah is our goal, the prophet our model, the Quran our constitution, jihad our plan, and death for the sake of Allah, the loftiest of our wishes. They're not primarily a secular organization. The Muslim Brotherhood calls jihad the industry of death, and they mean that in a good way. In their own words, to a nation that protects the industry of death, and which knows how to die nobly, God gives proud life in this world. Okay, that doesn't sound secular. Doesn't sound like somebody we should be in bed with. But the Muslim Brotherhood ran up against a problem, and that was, one of them, the kingdom of of Saudi Arabia, because it was backed by the West. Any of these kingdoms in the Middle East that have been backed by the West, Jordan will be next. Anybody who stands in their way, they had to destroy. But these were democracies. So how are we going to do it? 
Well, the Muslim Brotherhood decided to switch tactics and weaponize democracy. Enter the Arab Spring. The Arab Spring praised by everyone. We told you their goal is a caliphate. Well, it never materialized, did it? No. No, not there. It materialized from the chain of events with ISIS. What, you were talking about the Muslim Brotherhood? Right, and what happened to the Muslim Brotherhood? Did they just choose not to do a caliphate? Oh, no, no. They were overthrown. Oh. The Muslim Brotherhood still wants their caliphate. So now you have two of our allies, Turkey, Muslim Brotherhood, the Saudis, Wahhabists, who are both chasing the same exact dream, a Middle East and a world dominated by Sharia law. Both of them using jihadism as as a means to their ends. So Khashoggi or Khashoggi or whatever you're calling him today. Now we look at him. He is he is a guy who is a member of the Muslim Brotherhood. I want to say this. No one deserves this kind of death. This is not to excuse the Saudis. They're bad guys. But so is Turkey. And so was he. Everybody here. Oh, it's a Saudi progressive fighting for democracy. No, 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 no. He was fighting for the Muslim Brotherhood. In the 1980s and 90s, he was one of the king's main allies. He edited several Saudi newspapers, which he was basically Winston Smith in Orwell's 1984, sitting in the Saudi version of the Ministry of Truth, editing editing out all thought crime. Make sure that there was never anything hostile said about Wahhabism or the king. During this time, he cozied up to Osama bin Laden. He scored several interviews while al-Qaeda was fighting the Soviets in Afghanistan. Saudi intelligence employed him to be the middleman between bin Laden and the Saudi royal family. Well, in 2003, he fell out of favor with the Saudi royals. When he allowed to be published an article critical to the Wahhabist movement. Why did he do that? Because he's a member of the Muslim Brotherhood, and they were at odds with the Wahhabists. Khashoggi, or Khashoggi, was cast aside, and that's when the Western media fell in love with him. An active member of the Muslim Brotherhood, not a smear or conspiracy theory. In his own words, yes, I joined the Muslim Brotherhood organization and I was not alone. End quote. His Muslim Brotherhood friends and clerics were all imprisoned in Saudi Arabia during the Arab Spring. He got out. He came to the U.S. He established a political party while in exile called Democracy for the Arab World Now Party. The liberals, the progressives, the press loved him because they heard the word democracy. It's the Muslim Brotherhood plan to subvert democracy by turning it against itself. He wants wanted 
to establish Sharia law in the region. He was also a wicked anti-Semite who wrote, quote, outside the context of history and logic, the Jews will have to die by force. Oh, Israel's outside the context of history and logic. So we're going to have to kill all of them. This is not a smear campaign. When you hear somebody say that, you make sure you ask them, where are you doing your homework? Where are you getting that? Why is that a smear campaign? To say that he was a member of the Muslim Brotherhood? He clearly was in his own words. So why is that a smear campaign? Because I thought the Muslim Brotherhood was largely secular. Ask people, how much do you know about the caliphate? How much do you know about the founding of the Muslim Brotherhood? How much do you really know about what this man wrote? This man wrote that he... It was a mistake to think that you could have any kind of state in the Middle East without some form of Islamicists. Now, that's different, remember, than Islam. An Islamicist believes you have to use Sharia law. That's the constant. Wow, it sounds like the Muslim Brotherhood. That's our constitution. That is our law, Sharia law. So let's just begin to tell each other the truth. And here's the truth. Turkey is not a friend of ours. Turkey is in with the Muslim Brotherhood. Turkey would like to have a caliphate run by them. Saudi Arabia, not good people. Saudi Arabia, huge exporter of Wahhabism, and has done it here in the United States, has spent money building mosques that are very dangerous here in the United States. It's true. They kill him? Could be. Probably. Seems like it. I don't trust the Muslim Brotherhood in Turkey, but I also don't trust those guys. One of them killed him. Probably Saudi Arabia. Did he deserve it? No. Does he deserve to be called a freedom fighter? Only by either really uneducated progressives or just liars. Sponsor this half hour is Simply Safe. Simply safe home security system for your home, home security system, uh, you know, for your business as well. Uh, we have Simply Safe here at the uh, studios, and uh, it protects the the George Washington compass and the and the ruby slippers. Somebody came in and said, "Ruby slippers? There's seven ruby slippers uh, that were made. Actually, the the um, uh, Smithsonian has the worst." pair they're really beat up and really pretty nasty the best pair is probably owned by uh, an individual i think loaned them to the walt disney studios but ours are protected by simply safe simply safe now protecting more than two million americans you want to do it for rare artifacts well okay it's it's i use it for the family because my family are much more precious than any kind of artifact set up your system within minutes and own it 
They are really, really the best at what they do, and uh, they're really affordable. SimplySafeBeck.com. Go there now. Check out how much money you're going to save, how easy it is, and no contracts. It's SimplySafeBeck.com. Take control of your family security with SimplySafeBeck.com. Welcome to the program. Glad you're here. Ben Sass is coming up in just a minute. He has... uh, he is like a dentist that has just hit a nerve in your mouth, and everybody's like, nah, nah, nah. <laughs> uh, he's not making a lot of people happy. Um, and I'm really anxious to talk to him because, you know, I, I saw something of him on The View, and he's really not being given the time to talk and explain, especially Kavanaugh. He said, yeah, I was for her, and then I saw the additional 140 people the FBI interviewed, and there were severe problems. We'll talk about his vote for Kavanaugh and so much more when we come back. Glenn Beck is coming live to talk about the right path forward and to make fun of the people standing in the way. He might not be able to save the country, but at least we can all go down laughing. Glenn Beck Live, the Addicted to Outrage Tour, on tour this fall. Glenn Beck. It's Monday, October 22nd. You're listening to the Glenn Beck Program. This is going to be a fascinating uh, half hour. I could spend uh, many hours with him, and I think that's part of the problem. Uh, You'll see him on television, and no one is taking the time to actually listen to everything he has to say. And he has a lot to say about things that have been very concerning to me. Uh, including deep fakes, which I hope to uh, get into. But I want to start with his with his book and the thing that everybody is talking about them, why we hate each other and how to heal Ben Sass. Uh, welcome to the uh, program, Senator from Nebraska. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Nebraska's got a winning streak going again, so we're happy in the heartland. <laughs> Um, ben, I want to talk to you, and I, I, I want to ask you the questions basically that everyone asks me, because we are uh, on on some things in the same pocket, uh, and I'm I just want to hear your response uh, to this. Um, uh, uh, you know, some some line of questioning that usually comes my way. We have a a situation to where people have felt they have tried to do the right thing. They have tried to do the Tea Party, and they were accused of being racist, and they were accused of being violent, which they weren't. Meanwhile, the press and politicians excuse people like Antifa, and it's getting worse and worse. No, we're not anti-capitalist. We're not anti-American. And then Hillary Clinton says one of the reasons she lost was because she was for capitalism. You have Cortez coming out and Bernie Sanders stating with the DSA, that they are against capitalism. You have Antifa taking over the streets. You have Republicans being shot on the the ball field. The press is still ignoring all of this, blaming everything on the right. Then Kavanaugh, they're willing to take all the way to, yep, he's a gang rapist, and destroy people. When is enough enough? 
Well, so first of all, the way we consume politics is a mess, and lots of our political discussion itself is a mess. But I think it's really important to distinguish between two dimensions. One dimension is a continuum from right to left. Uh, and on those issues, I'm as conservative as they come. I'm, on anybody's scorecard, I'm the second or third most conservative senator uh, in the United States Senate. Um, but the second dimension is about the intensification of politics and how centrally should politics sit in your worldview. And there, I'm a big skeptic, because I'm a traditional American, uh, of the idea that politics can be near the center of your worldview and you end up very happy. So I think there's a lot of data now that shows more and more Americans are actually tuning out politics altogether. But the people who are involved in politics, some of the national media sort of purporting to cover it, uh, some of the poli- many of the politicians that sort of run for office and get to Washington, D.C. and never plan to leave again because they really think politics and power in D.C. are the center of the world. Uh, and some subset of the consumers of our political news, uh, it's about 8% on the left that are truly politically addicted. And we have a growing share on the right, now up to about 6% on the right that are politically addicted. These kinds of people are really taking political tribalism to a new and deeper place uh, and more intense place where it's crowding out more and more of the things that actually give people's lives meaning and happiness. And so I think it's very important to, I'm, I'm as far right as they come on the right versus left continuum, but it's very important to remember that the purpose of politics is to maintain a framework for ordered liberty so that you can go live in the communities of love where you're actually raising your kids and building a better mousetrap or app or where you're worshiping, because those are the communities that are going to make you happy. Politics is a means to an end. Politics isn't the end. So completely agree with you. However, our politicians are becoming more and more extreme, especially on the left. Um, They are you know they're they are anti-capitalist they are they're anti-constitution so you know you you on one hand i agree with you we can't be you know all about politics but at what point do you see good people say enough is enough and i can't take this anymore yeah, but then to what end? What, what do we do next? Because what we don't want to do next is what the weirdos did uh, to Nancy Pelosi in California. 100% on Friday, agree. What the weirdos did to Mitch McConnell and Elaine Chao in Kentucky exactly. on Saturday. Because there is no second or third chess move from there that doesn't just end up at violence. And this is not saying, by the way, that people don't have a First Amendment right to protest. They clearly do. But screaming someone down, taking Mitch and Elaine's food off their table and throwing it on the floor and saying, you don't belong in our country. Uh, to, to Leader McConnell or to Secretary Chow, who serves in President Trump's cabinet, that kind of stuff doesn't actually have persuasion as any goal. The, the only thing there is just sort of symbolic politics as rant, uh, which heads to a pretty dark place, I think. So I agree with you again. But where is the leadership? I've written a book. You've written a book. It's different than actually going out and leading um and standing you know martin luther king marching through antifa and taking the beating 
yes, but I think we should also recognize that the Antifa phenomenon is really built for short-term media clips. That is what they're doing. They're, I, I'm, in, I'm in the middle of a little downtown, a sort of a restored downtown in Omaha right now, and uh, there's no Antifa here, and yet we got a whole bunch of people who might be obsessed with thinking about Antifa today when I think we, we need to be aware of the sort of media ecology in which we live. So in the 1950s, 68% of Americans any given week were watching I Love Lucy. So that meant it was 68% of households. That meant basically 99% of households knew what Lucy and Desi had done that week. It wasn't important content, but it was shared content. Mm-hmm. There was an American we. When you fought with somebody about some project at work or if you disagreed with them about politics, um, you could still talk about things that we had in common. What's happening now and why I wrote this book of them is because there is no we right now. And the, the most watched cable news programming, uh, Sean Hannity is number one and Rachel Maddow is often number two. There's still really only 1.1% and nine-tenths of 1% of the public. And so our world is so fragmented and fractured that I think it's really important to not consume our media as if the people like Antifa who are, do, who are doing this to hope for viral clips. I think part of what healthy Americans should do is ignore them. So what is our, are we, I mean, I've spent the last two years and the things that I can, I continually come back to every single time is the bill of rights. It's why people came here because they were protected. They knew that they had the right to dream and create and be left alone. Yeah. Is, yeah. is that yeah. our, are we or Unum? So, yes, uh, unum, uh, e pluribus unum, out of the many, one, right? We don't have a whole bunch of one right now. We don't have a shared sense of what you've just said. The First Amendment is the beating heart of the American experiment. Freedom of religion, freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, freedom of speech, right of protest, all of those things flow from a fundamental assumption about the dignity of 320 million Americans, which is we believe Imago Dei. We believe that our citizens are created in the image of God with eternal souls and with dignity that's way bigger than their policy preferences. And so what's unique in our moment, I think the grand tension that we as a people are not really wrestling through that is so far upstream from politics is this tension between rootedness and rootlessness. Almost all of the happiness literature, if you will, out there is confirming stuff that wise people, people who've had grandparents, have known for millennia, which is that happiness is actually a relatively simple equation. Do you have a nuclear family? Do you have a couple of deep friendships? Uh, Do you have a local worshiping community? Do you have a theological framework to make sense of death and suffering? And fourth, and statistically the number one driver of happiness, is do you have meaningful vocation? Do you have shared work? Do you have coworkers? Do you think when you leave home on Monday morning, When you go to do something, not do you make a lot of money or do you have a lot of status, but is there some neighbor who benefits from what I do? If those four things are true, or even if three of the four are true, you're pretty likely to be happy. And that those things are all tied to rootedness. But we're living through a technological revolution that's tempting us to believe that we can be rootless, we can be placeless. And so a lot of what's happening is the undermining of local community and the undermining of thick relationships and the undermining of vocation or long work um, ends up in a world where a lot of people are using political tribalism to fill a void of the loneliness that's actually happening in their local community. And I think we need to reflect more deeply on that challenge of our time. All right. So I'm going to take a quick break and I want to come back and talk about um, the press 
talk about uh, the new press, if you will, Facebook and what you write about with deep fakes. Um, you uh, seem to be one of the very few in Washington that really get this. Uh, and uh, you're looking over the horizon. And we want to talk about that. We're talking to Ben Sass. His new book is called Them, Why We Hate Each Other and How to Heal. Our sponsor this half hour is Relief Factor. Relief Factor has uh, been um, kind of around our studios for a while. Uh, some of the guys have been taking Relief Factor here for a while. Uh, and I got to a place where my pain in the last few years have been, it's just been off the charts. And didn't know what to do about it anymore. I could not go to the doctor and, you know, hey, can you give me some drugs? I just don't want to live my life that way. And I needed to be able to be out of pain. What am I going to do? My wife finally said, because I'm, I'm a weirdo. I don't believe in the, oh, it's 100% drug free. Oh, really? So it's 100% useless. You know, here, eat this root. Smell this herb. Yeah, right. Uh-huh. I started taking Relief Factor, honestly, out of desperation, not thinking that it would work. Three weeks later, I order another pack of Relief Factor so I can take it every day. You take it three times a day. It reduces the inflammation in your body. I would not be doing this commercial. I don't believe in in selling you stuff that you have to put in your body unless I've done it and it actually makes a difference. Four key ingredients that help fight against inflation. Try the three-week quick start. 1995. This has worked for me almost a year now, and it has changed. I've gotten my life back. Get your life back with relieffactor.com. Call them 1-800-583-84 or relieffactor.com. We're talking to uh, Ben Sass, <clears throat> and I have so many places I would like to um, uh, go with you um, and and talk to the senator about. We're going to run out of time. Uh, I would like to invite you to do a um, an hour and a half uninterrupted podcast with me, Senator, when you have time, um, because I think your voice needs to be heard and understood and parts of it challenged. Um, sure. But uh, I would like to just pick up on this point he said the number one driver of happiness is vocation you're one guy that will understand this if that's true in the next 10 years we're in deep trouble we're headed toward a really interesting time in human history and it's both scary and fascinating so somebody some people shorthand for this is the uberization of the economy i think the simpler way to think about it is just um the average duration of people's jobs or their relationship at a firm is going to get shorter than ever before in human history so <clears throat> let's go macro for a minute hunter gatherers throughout most of human history you don't have any conception of what your job is you pursue that buffalo right and then 10,000 years ago people settled down and started planting and harvesting and we began to farm on a, on a regular cycle and from 10,000 years ago till 150 years ago nobody had job choice they just did with grandma and grandpa and mom and dad and aunts and uncles that ever had done forever eternity past with the industrial revolution we get job specialization and it was really disruptive but when people took a job they still kept it till death or retirement not everybody graduated high school at the beginning of the industrial revolution by the end almost everybody does but you still get one job at some time between 15 and 22 years old and you keep 
keep it for all of your life. I was born in the 1970s. Average duration at a firm for a primary breadwinner then was still 26 years. Now it's four years and getting shorter, and it's going to get shorter forevermore. McKinsey, a firm I used to work with, believes that 50% of the American labor market by three years from now, this is not 20 years in the future, three years from now, they think 50% of the labor market will be primarily freelancers, meaning that most people will cobble together a bunch of different jobs. Not all of them are going to be app-enabled tech jobs like being an Uber driver with the right software that makes you more efficient than an old-school cabbie. But what's really going to happen is we're going to head toward a world where people are going to get disrupted out of their jobs at age 40 and 45 and 50 and 55 forevermore. We've never, ever done that in human history. And so it means all of the angst of what's often called now the quarter-life crisis, the sort of late adolescence crisis of trying to figure out your, your role in life and how do you go from just being a consumer in mom and dad's house to being a producer that can not just put bread on the table for your kids, but can actually have a sense of meaning that you're serving your neighbor. That disruption that most people know in late adolescence, we're going to experience that again every three to five years for our whole life. And that means there's a lot of new potential for upheaval and frankly, for unhappiness. There's going to be more economic output than has ever been produced before in human history. But it's not at all clear that it will redound to the median family and the median household and the median worker. We're going to have to become a civilization of lifelong workers able to get retrained when you're 40. Nobody's ever done that before. Okay, so there's about an hour of questions uh, just on (laughs) on that one. Uh, But I've got about three minutes left. Can you give me uh, your take on the first real political upheaval that we're going to see that I think by 2020, it could change everything, could start global wars, deep fakes. Yeah. So one of the reasons I wrote them is because I spent a lot of time on intelligence issues. And um, in the intel community, there are people who talk about the perfect storm of deep fakes that we have coming. And the storm is these three ingredients. Number one, new technology makes it possible to sort of narrow cast a world with fake audio and fake video, where lots of people can be susceptible to being sort of um, uh, spoofed or persuaded that things that aren't real are real. There's always been enemies doing malicious actor, you know, information warfare since the beginning of time. You can find it in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes uh, to sow discord in an enemy's tent. But it used to require a prostitute and a honey trap and a fake business partner and a bribery scheme mm-hmm. and a bar. Right? You had to get people around people. Mm-hmm. Number one is now we can use technology to surround someone and give them a fake experience and deep audio and deep video, or fake audio and fake video that are going to seem real are going to make that possible. Number two, Russia is all already trying this constantly against us. They're just bad at it. The real reason we need to take the Russia type investigation so seriously is because China is right behind them running scout team offense um, on them and ready to do big deep fakes, uh, hybrid war information operations against American leaders and business officials and the public at large. And number three, we have so many internal divisions about geography, about race, about um, gender, about guns. There's many, many issues issues where Americans are so divided that we are susceptible to these kind of campaigns like Russia is already trying to run on social media. They're just not very good at it, where they try to exacerbate and inflame tensions on every side of every issue. The NFL kneeling controversy, majority of the stuff online on 
social media in the first 72 hours after that flamed last fall. The majority of it on both sides stand for the anthem and take in the NFL. Most of it was Russian on both sides. And so we're going to have a world where you're going to have things like the Kavanaugh hearings, where all of a sudden audio will appear of Schumer strategizing with Michael Avenatti, or video will appear. It'll be fake, but video will appear, and it'll be Kavanaugh partying hard as an undergrad at Yale. It'll be fake, but in our echoed silo chambers of the way we consume media right now, it's going to be um, potentially much more divisive than what we know today. And so one of the reasons I wanted to write them uh, why we hate each other is an awareness that there's actually national security exposures for this country and how much we hate each other around politics. We need communities of people that live in the same neighborhood that believe lots of stuff in common, even when we differ on politics. How come we can't get anybody in Washington or in the media to talk about this, Ben? Uh, it took us, what, 25 minutes to unpack some of it. And the business model of selling soap three minutes from now is, let's just say, who the bad guy is. You know, there's there's some nut job somewhere in a McDonald's right now who probably slapped an old man wearing a MAGA hat. And uh, that person is a weirdo and did something wrong, but they don't actually stand in for all debate. And that's really the way we're consuming most of our media right now is that kind of nut picking. And so it's harder to do 10 and 25 year out issues. But that's the, that's the strategic stuff. Stuff that Washington should be focused on. How are you going to do that when you have, well, I've got 30, I've got 30 <laughs> seconds. I'm not going to even ask you. I'm not even going to ask you. I would like to ask you to come down, uh, Ben, and, and really unpack this uh, because I think your voice needs to be heard and understood. And I think in sound bites, um, it's not, uh, not always understood. Um, so thank you very much. Thanks for the invite. Good to be with you. Glenn. You bet. Senator Ben Sass. Um, why we hate each other and how to heal. I really want to. I really want to get into him on taking on your own side. How do we heal if we're taking on our own side? I hope that he will uh, come down and uh, and spend some real time with us. Back in just a second. So. I'm hearing people say Ben Sass is torching his career. Uh, I don't think that there is a career for Ben Sass that he would be interested in. If, you know, we become just an uncivil society, he's not going to want to, you know, there wouldn't be a career for him. Would you agree with that's that? Not, yeah, that's not, it's not something he would be interested in. That's fair. Yeah. Um, uh, and we kind of forget about who this guy is. I mean, voted f- with Donald Trump 87% of the time. Yeah, so because there's, the, there's a, and, you know, look, personalities a lot of times in media, inflammation, kind of a lot of the stuff he's talking about in the book, right? Wind up summarizing a person. It's like you look at Sass's, even with Trump in office, he's seen as this big Trump opponent. It's like, well, I mean, he's voting with him 87% of the time. And look at the stuff he's voting against Trump on. Um, uh, tariffs now look you could say what you want if you want to be if you're pro tariffs now i mean but i mean the conservative position for multiple decades going back to ronald reagan is 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 not protectionist Mm -mm. so he's the one being consistent there uh you know whether you know a lot lot of people have changed on that at some level um but still i mean it's we're seeing the effects of this in the middle of the country right now the tariffs are are very harmful to the economy it's about to get worse uh the spending bill 
he voted against the Trump administration spending bill. Well, I mean, I think everybody knows, including, by the way, Trump even said how bad it was. He just still voted for it. He still signed it and was, you know, wound up supporting it in the end. But he even said it was terrible. I have a he new, voted against that. I have a new argument on spending that you have to remind me of. Uh, scarcity of money. We're about to hit scarcity of money, which is all tied into the spending bill. And it'll mm. boggle your mind. When you see, oh, well, you know, it doesn't matter. No, it's going to matter. It's going to matter on whether you can afford to buy a car or not in a way that you've never thought of before. Hmm. I voted against raising the debt limit, extension of government funding for a couple of weeks and imposing uh, sanctions on Russia, Iran and North Korea. Uh, Another separate one uh, imposing uh, sanctions on Russia. The another uh, free trade thing uh, opposing the nomination of Lighthizer. So I think I mean, like these are all right. tr- traditional conservative positions that he took. And I don't think anyone in our audience would be like, oh, well, I I'm mad at Ben Sass for for wanting for opposing additional no, spending. I, I think and it is a legitimate. It's not a concern. Yeah. It's a legitimate concern. And it's a concern about, you know, um, it's a, it's a battle that I have in my own head. Um, You know, when is enough enough? Stu, is the press the enemy of freedom? The enemy of freedom? No. Enemy of 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 the people. Yeah, I, mean, I don't agree with that uh, terminology. I understand there's massive problems with it at times. And, right. you know, sometimes there's intentional. So what, what would make them the I mean, if you are if you are running things that are not true and they know they're not, if they are silencing and smearing voices on the other side. At what point is there a tipping point? I mean, you, I agree with the First Amendment. You still have the right. They have a right to do it. Mm-hmm. But where is the point to where you say you guys are when when you are covering for Antifa, when you are covering for people who say, I want an end to the capitalist system. And you say, well, she's she's advocating socialism not can not canadian socialism socialism communism she's talking about state run and owned property and businesses now that's that's not a welfare state oh you're a conspiracy theorist wait she just said it at what point <laughs> oh, i mean first of all the you know the press is a collection of individuals some of which do a good job some of which do not uh so it's important to make those distinctions i think um, and, you know, look, that is a this was just this was going on at our founding. You know, people were doing I this know. at our founding and, and, and at our founding. What we what we what we realize is when we were an engaged and informed populace, we chose correctly. Right. I mean, I, I you know, if we're not. Well, we know what the solution we know a, a republic, if you can keep it right, mm-hmm. it, if we don't choose to keep the republic well then of course it's going to fall apart we knew this was an experiment and that was the risk of it and i think we are seeing some some of those risks pop their heads up but i mean the whole foundation of this country is to let people uh come out and make their arguments and we have to make ours back that does not mean um you know the nancy pelosi thing and i was so encouraged i hope you were too so encouraged by the uh, reaction from conservatives she, Nancy Pelosi shouted down, uh, and I did not see a peep of support from conservatives over the actions of the people protesting her. Mm-mm. I didn't see. I was disgusted by it. I was disgusted by it as well, and I didn't see any. I didn't. Now, I'm not saying 
there were none. I'm sure people will show me a tweet of some you know nut job who's like, I think they should harass Nancy Pelosi at dinner. But I didn't see one prominent Republican or conservative support those actions. Not one. You could see you. We could we played dozens of Democrats. No, here's 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 one from Sean King. I've said it before, but I need to say it again. I'm grateful for Antifa. It's weird Mm -hmm. that it's politically incorrect for me to say so, but I'm glad we have people in this country who stand up to fascist and uh, bigotry and are willing to confront hate face to face. Right. And that you could go. There's dozens dozens of of those. There are prominent politicians. Yeah. I I have not seen one prominent conservative support what happened to Pelosi. And that's right. And I'm glad. I mean, that's that shows that there's still, you know, even though we're divided and even though a lot of things come down to minute emotional politics. That go minute to minute. I'm glad to see that there's still principles there. So here's where I think Ben was wrong when he said deal with Antifa. Um, he was right when he said, you know, it's a small group. It's a small group. Mm-hmm. He's right. It is a very small group. And they become very, very loud because of social media and because of the media. But it is a small group where I think he's wrong is ignore it. He said part of the solution is ignoring it. Yeah. And I think. You know, because you can get to the point where, like, I would say the same would apply to the alt-right, right? You know, like yes. the Charlottesville situation. Um, you know, there's obviously a crime committed there that um, you can't ignore. Right. Um, but generally speaking, when a bunch of Nazis or KKK members, this has been happening forever. These stories mm-hmm. go back forever. A bunch of KKK members walk through your town. Like, you know, largely speaking, it's great to ignore them because they want attention and they want right. they but this that's is, not what we have now we have mm-hmm. antifa breaking laws you can't ignore that no you can't ignore you that. can't ignore that no i don't care if it's the nazis or antifa you can't ignore and that i don't think sass would argue you ignore the, right i mean like i think he's saying that we get a little bit too wrapped up in the back and forth viral videos and people who are not even really engaged in politics f- getting freaked out over things that they're never going to have to necessarily deal with if you dismiss a group like Antifa, though, though, that's how they grow. Uh, and uh, at least arguably, that's how they grow. If they're unopposed, you're seeing it happen in Portland, right? The, in, the mayor is largely just ignoring what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And it's getting worse and worse and worse and worse. That does not mean our lives have to be ruled by Antifa, though. And I think that was the generalized argument he was going for. Well, the, the, the key here is, what do you do about it? And the solution is to not do what people did in Florida with Nancy Pelosi. You don't do that because that doesn't give you a side to run to. Yeah. You don't do what the Proud Boys are doing. I'm sorry, but it's I just. Man, you've talked to Gavin about that. Yeah. yeah. And I think Gavin is even, you know, looking at things going, okay, you know, look, we were we were doing things because, you know, it's funny. Uh, <laughs> he's a comedian. Uh, yeah, he's a comedian. Um, but, you know, this this will grow out of control. You just don't do that because there's nowhere to go. When you're watching that, you're like, well, I don't like what Nancy Pelosi is doing, but I don't like what they're doing. So who do I go to? And look at look how the press is treating Donald Trump. Look how the press treated Kavanaugh. Everybody kind of hardened their positions, didn't they? Everybody just hardened their positions and got more outraged. The only the only thing that might have happened is independence looked at that and said, 
you know what? I don't want to be with those people. The left. The left. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to be with the I don't want to be with the left. And then look over to the Republicans. They weren't misbehaving during that. But what are we doing to welcome people in? If you're kind of saying, I don't want to be with those guys. And then you see, you know, you commies get out, get out. And they're pounding on Pelosi's door. And you're like, okay, I don't, we can't, we can't get to a place to where people disengage because if they do completely disengage, then it's just run. The country's run by radicals. We need to be a safe haven. We need to be a place of real thought Real, actual kindness um, and real principles. Yeah, I mean, we have to present a rational, logical alternative. I mean, that is one of the reasons I'm a conservative, right? Right. I saw the left, you know, early in my life as a group of people who made decisions emotionally. Yeah. And that's not something I wanted to be part of. No, and we can't <laughs> be a part of that. We can't do that ourselves. Let yeah. me go to Andrew in Florida. Hello, Andrew. You're on the Glenn Beck program. Glenn, good morning. First time caller, long time listener. How y'all doing today? Very good. All right. Yeah. You know what? I, I just wanted to let you know. I mean, I'm here from Florida. I've been an independent uh, most of my adult life, and um, exactly what you guys just said. The, the vitriol on both sides is so ridiculous. I think a lot of the independents just stay out of it because it's so immature and it makes everyone on both sides look bad because they just can't talk to each other mm-hmm. anymore. It's just that far gone. Now, that being said, everyone that I know that's an independent in the state of Florida will be showing up for the conservatives Re- come November. Really? Uh, and, uh, yeah, and why and is I'll that? Tell you Simple reasons. You've got people in the office, offices right now out there that are fighting for lower taxes. I myself, I'm bringing home over three thousand more dollars this year than I did last year, which is a huge deal for me. I've got yeah. two little girls, and I've got one more. Finally, I got my first son coming in April. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm. You yes. know what I mean? Yes. And, 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 and there's there's things like that that are going on, and, I, and I'm a conservative Christian. So that you, when you're when you're talking about what these people represent and how they force themselves into restaurants and confront people when they're eating with their family, uh, most of independents think exactly the way I do. They, they're so disgusted with some of the, the rhetoric on both sides, we just ignore it. And we've always been independent thinkers, and we're going to stay that way. But we also know what's wrong is wrong, and what's right is right as far as the big picture is concerned. And I think a lot of people are underestimating that. Well, Andrew, um, you if what you say is true, uh, then people are um, – then the Republicans will keep the House, most likely, uh, because it is so close at levels we've never seen of interest and participation in a midterm election ever – uh, and it's it's within the margin of error between the two that if the independents come out and they are the they could be the ones that make all the difference on which direction we go. Thanks so much, Andrew. So filter by is our sponsor. And I I brought this in uh, last week because Stu and I've been joking about when's the last time you changed your filter. And uh, 
Yours was uh, about 1974, it looks like, from the appearance. uh... I have a feeling it was 1974. These were were white. When I put the new one in, they're white. Uh, and they're not. They're they're, they're not. There's no. this dark gray, dark What'd dark charcoal gray, mm. and just full of ugh, just nasty. Thanks for bringing it into the studio. You're welcome. Appreciate that. So I can just so blow we can around in the, the air. Yeah. So you breathe that in. That's what was filtering my air. And quite honestly, I'm not. I mean, I, I'm just. I'm not the guy who's like, I've got that on my to do list. I've got to do that <laughs> unless somebody reminds me. Here's the thing. Filter by will remind you by sending you a new filter. That's they sent my filter, and that's when I pulled it off the porch, and I was like, "Oh yeah, I should change this." I mean, you know where the filters are? <laughs> yeah, we actually had that conversation. So anyway, you can choose from six hundred sizes. They'll make custom for you. They ship for free within twenty four hours. They're made here in America. You're going to save five percent when you subscribe for auto replacement, so you'll never forget to change your filter, so it never looks like that. Filter by save you time, save you money, and you'll breathe better. So go there now. Filterbuy.com. Filterbuy.com. Glenn Beck. <laughs> Welcome to the program. Glad you're here. We have uh, Larry Sharp coming in next. He is a uh, he's a guy who is running for governor of New York. And we talked to him on the phone recently, and I really, really liked him. Uh, thought he was just, uh, I thought he was a guy who didn't sound like any politician I've heard in New York. Uh, and a guy who has out-of-the-box answers uh, that are the kinds of things that we should be talking about. You know, you want to fix the roads? Okay. How about uh, renaming the Williamsburg Bridge to the Staples Bridge or whatever it is? <laughs> uh, okay, I'm good with that. Anybody else? I mean, why would you be against that? I'm totally for that. Oh, really? Because they'll get their name on traffic updates and everything else? Sure. Yeah, go for it. I mean, in the situation we're in, that's the least of our worries yeah. is what the name of a bridge is. Yeah, uh, yeah. No, he's uh, he's interesting. I, you know, again, someone advocating for smaller government today is so rare. I know it's uh, such a freak so show. It's kind of nice. So we have the freak here, and we're going to bring him in in a cage. <laughs> we're going to poke at him once in a while. So watch, he'll say smaller government. Poke. I fully I love support it. that. It's way, again, I'm I, I've come to the point in my life. I'd just much rather err on that side. Even if there's certain things that, uh, you know, I might disagree with libertarians on. Uh, I just would rather err on the side of someone who's saying, take the power away from the government to make those decisions. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I'm pretty much a libertarian and uh, at least close to it um, as you can be. But still, it's like it's it's bizarre how many people say they agree with the, the principles. And then at the end. Yeah, they really uh, don't. Yeah, and when it what comes it means to when effect, it comes to them. Yeah. yeah, when it comes to them. It doesn't really. Oh, no, no. Wait a minute. I can get that. So. No, no. Uh, it only works if we all if we all are like, no, I'm really going to do it. I'm really going to do it. When it affects me, I'm going to do it. That's when that's when it counts. Larry Sharp, candidate for governor of New York next. Glenn Beck is coming live to talk about the right path forward and to make fun of the people standing in the way. He might not be able to save the country, but at least we can all go down laughing. Glenn Beck live, the addicted to outrage tour on tour this fall. Glenn Beck. It's Monday, October 22nd. You're listening to the Glenn Beck program. Libertarian candidate for the governor of New York. 
Larry Sharp joins us in studio. You can find him at Larry Sharp. That's with an E, LarrySharp.com. Larry, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me again. I appreciate it. So you were on with us uh, for a few minutes a couple of weeks ago over the phone. And uh, I I was fascinated by you because you you think completely out of the box. Yes. You're not thinking like a politician, which is exactly what I think what we need. 100%. You are not being heard because... For instance, tomorrow they're having a debate mm-hmm. and you're not invited. That's correct. Right. They don't like me. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't get it. Nobody likes oh you. Oh, my God. Yeah, yes. right. So um, so how does somebody like you get elected? Look, it's it's establishment with establishment, right? The, the, establish, the establishment media stays with the establishment candidates, right? So that's what winds up happening when it comes to debates. They, stop, they do that. So, look, it, you mentioned the idea that I have Ocasio-Cortez right mm-hmm. literally she's going to be my congressperson she's she's oh my, my district yes in queens absolutely and i said this is a good thing and this is a good thing because it shows one thing it shows this is an anti-establishment world right now she didn't win because she was amazing and smart and knew everything she wouldn't because she said i'm not the establishment and people ran to her that's one of the reasons why trump won it's one of the reasons why even obama won in 2008 i mean anti-establishment is a thing that people tend to like now the advantage i have is i'm anti-establishment you're saying, how am I going to win if I can't get the mainstream media? By doing what I'm doing now, doing podcasts, doing Facebook. Look, Trump, one of the reasons why Trump won was Twitter, right? That wasn't the reason, but it was one of the reasons. He used that tool and they didn't see him coming. I use the same tools, right? I use Twitter. I use Facebook. I use podcasts. I use the same tools. They don't like it. It makes them angry, but it's what I'm using. They didn't see them coming. They didn't see uh, Cortez coming either, and they won't see me coming either. However, with Cortez, um, she was she's been uh, you know embraced by the establishment on the left. The Democrats have become democratic socialists, which is just because you put the word democrat mm-hmm. in democratic in front of it doesn't mean that it's a a really wonderful thing. Yeah, but there's a thing you need to notice now here. Even though Cortez won, Nixon didn't. And Nixon actually called herself a socialist. What happened? Once they said, oh, this Cortez person's a different person. Great, let's vote for her. Then they heard what she had to say. And you found a lot of New Yorkers went, you know what? Maybe this isn't right. And people who voted for Cortez shifted and voted for our current governor, His Majesty King Andrew Cuomo II. (laughs) So they voted for him again. So they went back to establishment after her. So I think there was a little bit of buyer's remorse there. There was, "I'll, I'll get you establishment. Oh, wait a minute. No, not that much. And I think they came back. I think there was some buyer's remorse there. And I think you are seeing that sometimes, right? The average youngster, and it's usually youngsters who like socialism, right? Doesn't know what it means. There, I'll give you an example. You find in upstate New York, you find often the rebel flag. And some people say, well, that's the Confederate flag. And I say, no, it isn't. It's a symbol of rebellion, mm-hmm. right? And it's often a symbol of rebellion, usually on the right. It's a symbol of rebellion. It isn't like the people in upstate New York are going, the South will rise again. They're not, they're not saying that, right? That's not what they're saying. Right. But they are saying this is a rebellion. It's a flag of rebellion. And Alexander Cortez, is she is a, a rebellion on the left. Socialism is a rebellion on the left. They don't know what it means. They have no idea what it means. They just know it's, it's not the establishment. The establishment's not working. That's why Che is important. Exactly. He becomes amazing. They have no idea what he did. They have mm-hmm. no idea who he is. 
but he's the rebellion guy. So he becomes a symbol of rebellion on the left. Don't, mean, don't get me wrong. Are there people on the left who are exactly who these people are? Of course there are, but that's often the leadership. I'm talking the average everyday person who votes. They just know what's happening now isn't working. That's why people listen to me. When I actually talk, I talk about ways of making people better. I, I focus on something which will sound crazy. I focus on happiness because our nation was built on life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. And no one talks about this. I do all the time. Everything I'm talking about is to try to make people more happy or to at least allow them to pursue happiness. All right. So tell me about that. Let's start there. Sure. Um, we talk, I talk about, for example, there, there are many controversial things that I talk about. Uh, education. I, I have a complete revamp of the education system. And people just want to keep funding the same system. Um, making hemp and cannabis legal. Okay, I, hang on. Wait, before we... Sure. Okay, let's stop. Let's start you with education. Me. Go with sure. education first. Absolutely. I'm the one talking about getting rid of all standardized testing prior to high school. I'm the one talking about doing that because standardized testing is an unfair way of grading teachers. It's an unfair way of rewarding schools. And it makes kids who are 10, 11, and 12 years old feel stupid because they can't test well. Mm-hmm. And it's no indication of success. And what are we finding? We're finding literally kids... We, we have a 30% rise in suicide across this entire nation to include children. One of those reasons is family court, how broken that is. But another reason is they're pressured to take tests and to feel stupid and to be some, become successful at 10, 11, 12 years old. Why? Standardized testing is very good when you're in high school and showing where you should go, where your proclivities are. Not a bad idea. But 10 years old? Why? It's to keep control of what's happening in the schools. I'm not okay with that. Now, you have a bit of gray hair, as I do. <laughs> so that means you were in school prior to 1980. Mm-hmm. So was I. Prior to 1980, there really was no Department of Education. I mean, it existed, but it was basically a repository for information. That's mm-hmm. all it really was. Mm-hmm. It didn't really do anything. Mm-hmm. Somehow, everyone in, in, in the United States somehow learned how to read, write, survive in the world without an, a, a Department of Education. Somehow, that worked. Somehow, local school districts did a good job. Somehow, that worked. Now, you add the internet... You add our technology, you think the odds are worse? I'm going to give you a quick rundown of every single time centralized control has made things better. Finished. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Right. So that's not really what I want. I want to to make sure that we have some localized control. I'm the only guy saying, let teachers teach, then I don't add administrators. Because here's the problem with getting rid of standardized testing. You will lose about, we will lose in New York State, we will lose about $4 billion in federal funding. It's a lot of money, but isn't that much for us? Our budget is $60 billion. So losing $4 billion, not the end of the world. However, we can still fix that. Here's the issue here. When we lose that $4 billion, we also lose something else. We lose all those strings attached to that $4 billion. And there's lots of strings, which means administrators go away. Administrators who are writing grants, administrators who are checking boxes, all those things. We have massive teacher burnout in New York State. Massive. Why? Regulations, rules, checking boxes. I'm the only one saying these things because I crossed the entire state. My state has 62 counties. I crossed all 62. I'm calling it the full sharp, by the way. <laughs> but you so, did, but, but so, how so now many- I want teachers to actually want to teach. We actually have districts that have more administrators than teachers. The average teacher, and that's a shameful, by the way. The average teacher makes about $80,000 a year in New York State, and the average administrator makes over 150. Mm. You dump a couple of administrators, you've hired more teachers, you've given raises, you've bought computers, all these things. But I'm still not done. Why in the world would we have K through 12? We need K through 10. The last two years of high school for too many kids is gym, study hall, video games, and probably smoking weed. Mm. That's all they're doing. How do we know this? Because the first year of college for most kids is 13th grade. 
It's a reboot because they're not ready for it. Correct. So now it takes at least six years for the average kid to graduate college. Well, that's terrible. Now we've got a 24-year-old kid who's never had a job, and we say, I wonder why he has no work ethic. Well, he's never had a job. He's, 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 been, he's, been, he's been screwing around for eight years, literally. Now, I have people who will tell me, literally, Larry, I will hire anybody with a work ethic. I had one uh, entrepreneur told me, he said, Larry, my interview process is very simple. I tell them to show up at 8 o'clock. I open the door. If they're there, they're hired. Hmm. That's how bad it is for people to show up at 8 o'clock in the morning. It is. So, that's, so we need to break that system. Now, I can't change parenting. That I can't do. But can I change this, the, the environment? Of course. At 16 now instead, kids should have five choices. They, they take a test. They get a high school diploma. Number one, if college is right for you, that's amazing. Go to college. The problem is we've been told a lie. And the lie is the only way to have success in this country is to get a great high school diploma and then go to a great college and then sit behind a desk in a, front, in a computer all day. Mm-hmm. That's a way to success. Not even close to the only way to success. Lots of people are happy doing all types of things and we should embrace that. So at 16, let's start making some decisions. If I think college is right for me, I go to a two-year prep school. Two-year prep school is that uh, biology, chemistry, history, whatever. Great, off to college I go. Two years and I make sure it's, it's working right. So by the time I get into college, I'm ready. I can graduate in three or four years. I can take advantage of internships, uh, incubators. Life is good. I don't like that. No worries. I'm the super smart kid. The kid who, you know, loves Doctor Who. I'm teasing my Doctor Who fans. <laughs> I'm a Doctor Who fan. There we go. Exactly. Yes. Off. So the, the, the geek kid. I, right? I'm yes. not sure about the new doctor, you know, being a female, but that's a different story. That's go ahead. okay. Yes. So, um, so that kid who's really smart, that kid takes the SAT right away and goes off and gets a two-year degree. Why should they be bored in school? Mm-hmm. They shouldn't be bored in school. Next, you don't want any of those things? No worries. Go to a two-year trade school. Go to a trade school, become a plumber, a carpenter, whatever you want to be, a mechanic, an HVAC guy. In New York State particularly, we need that desperately. The average tradesman in New York State is over 50. Mm-hmm. That's a problem. I love my 50-year-olds. I'm 50. I love my 50-year-olds. My problem is they should not be the average. They should not be doing all the work. They should be training the youngsters, and you can't find enough in New York City to do it. Mm-hmm. It's a problem. So do that. We don't like that. Go get a job. Why not go learn a work, work ethic now at 16? I worked at 16. I know lots of people in my generation worked at 16. I yes. Go work. Learn what it means to have a boss. Learn what it means when your boss says show up at 8. That doesn't mean 9.30. That actually means 7.45. Learn that now at 16, 17, 18, get some experience. But Larry, sounds great. How do you pay for it? New York State Constitution tells me I have to pay for grades 1 through 12. Great. I'll pay for the last two years too. I'll still pay for them. Here's how I do it. I'm a Marine. When I got in Marine Corps, I had a GI Bill. They gave me X dollars and Y years to use it. Same thing here. You're 16. You got $20,000, seven years to use it. Good luck. Here's what, I'm, here's what I promise is going to happen. A bunch of cool prep schools will pop up. A bunch of great trade schools will pop up. Guess how much they'll cost for two years? Yeah, Mm $20,000. Of course they will. How do I know they'll pop up? Because it's guaranteed government money. What do banks love most? Guaranteed Guaranteed government money. Yes, they do. So they will absolutely give loans to make these schools pop up. It'll be amazing. But here's the best part. When these schools pop up, now we're spending $10,000 per kid per year for these last two years. New York State spends $22,000 per year per kid. So we're saving $12,000 each. 12,000 times the 400,000 11th and 12th graders is more than $4 billion. We've saved all of the federal funds. We've removed tons of administrators. We've given teachers a, a, a better chance to actually teach. We've given teachers freedom to do what they feel is appropriate. We've got rid of Common Core. Uh, we've made teenagers who are unhappy happier. And this goes to the next level, which is school safety. If you look at all the school shootings we've had, while they are murders, 
at it, at their core, they're public suicides. They're unhappy kids. Mm-hmm. That's at their core. They're unhappy kids. Mm-hmm. Now think about this. 11th, 12th grade. You're an 11th, 12th grader. You're in a class with everyone who wants to be there. The bully kid isn't there. The bully kid's in something else. The kid's a bully because he doesn't want to be there. That's why he's a bully. But now he goes someplace else. You're a teacher, 11th, 12th grade. Discipline problems almost go away. Why? All the kids want to be there. They've taught. What's killing our children isn't guns. What's killing our children is lack of community, lack of purpose, and loneliness. That's killing our kids. Put them in these worlds. All that goes away. I can't go shoot my fellow friend. The teacher's having me you know, build a rocket with my class. I can't go shoot anybody. I've, the, the farmer needs me to fix a tractor. I've got things to do. I've, I've purpose. I have meaning. I don't do things like that anymore. We are living in a world of massive change. Yes. Massive change. And when's the last time you heard any politician sound anything like this? Running for governor of New York, his name is Larry Sharp. You want to find out more? Go to Larry Sharp, S-H-A-R-P-E, LarrySharp.com. Back in just a second. Let me tell you about LifeLock. For more than three years, a software vulnerability in the Google Plus social media network unwittingly gave third-party developers potential access to users' private profile information. More than 496,000 users who shared private profile data with a friend may have had their their data access. This is going to be a common problem uh, for the future. There is no such thing as privacy, and it's just getting worse and worse and worse. My, I was on the way home yesterday. My wife looked at her phone. She's been hacked by the Russians. <laughs> yeah. What, is there a just pops up? So you've been hacked by the no, Russians? No, she 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 couldn't send anything, and she looks she looked at her mail that she was trying to send, and it was all um uh it, it, all in Cyrillic, and the stuff that the, somebody had taken her uh, email list and oh, used yeah. it mm-hmm. to forward something in Cyrillic. We don't have any friends who speak Russian, so I don't know what they were doing, but. Uh, it's happening now. LifeLock is the is the group that will protect you. LifeLock identity theft protection. They now or uh, have the um, uh, Norton security system, and they've put them both together to help you against the threats to your identity and your devices that you can't easily see or fix on your own. Nobody can stop all cyber threats, prevent all identity theft, or monitor all transactions at all businesses. But the new LifeLock with Norton security can see threats that you might miss on your own. So go to LifeLock.com. LifeLock dot com or call 1-800-LIFELOCK and use the promo code BECK. Get an extra 10% off your first year plus a $25 Amazon gift card with annual enrollment. It's LifeLock.com. 1-800-LIFELOCK. Promo code BECK. Terms do apply. I don't know about you, but I'm tired of the same old politics. And uh, Larry Sharp is joining us now he is running for governor in uh new york and i think his ideas need to be heard and he needs to be uh he needs to be introduced to a larger audience how what is your organization like what's your ground game like yeah we have we have probably the best um libertarian ground game i've seen in a long time um if probably ever we have over seven or eight directors and campaign manager about 35 to 50 people who are actively working every day on every aspect of the campaign to include things like uh, scheduling, setting up events, mm-hmm. uh, fixing our calendar, 
uh, making sure people show up. Social media, we have a, a team on Twitter, a team on Instagram, a team on Facebook. We we have a team on everything. YouTube, we do video production. We and do you're not, you don't have, but you you're lacking money. You're up against people who have tens of millions of tens dollars. tens of millions of dollars. Absolutely, we've raised almost half a million. But to be to be clear, if in these last couple of weeks, if we raise another fifty thousand dollars, hundred thousand dollars. This becomes winnable. I know it sounds crazy, but it is. And the reason is name recognition is my only issue. The last poll we put out, I was at about one third name recognition. And with that, I polled at 13%. So you can do the math on that one. Three times to get to 100% equals 39%, right? Three times 13, 39%. This is a five-way race. 30% could win this thing. So I'm nine points above victory, assuming I can get 100%. There's the hard part, right? It's a math equation. Can I get to 100%? And sadly, that's not my message. I've got that down. It's the media. Can I get my name out to enough people to where I cross over that barrier, which gets me over the 30%? I can't mark? believe that there's, I mean, it's like libertarians don't want to win. Yes. It's very, yes. <laughs> it really is. Yes. Well, again, you got to remember, as, as third party in general, the system is stacked against you. And someone the other day was telling me, they said, you know, only someone who has like a marine mentality could do this because every day I'm up against failure. But the Marine Corps taught me, take the hill, the captain shot. Take the hill. The machine gun's broken. Take the hill. The radios don't work. Take the hill. Stop giving me excuses. Take the hill. I get it. And that's what I do. I have to take the hill. It doesn't matter. I I, I literally deal with failure every day, disappointment every day. And when I say that, that's not an exaggeration. That's every single day. As as I mentioned earlier, there's going to be a debate coming up here tomorrow at WCBS, and they're only going to include the Democrat Republican, even though I'm on the ballot. Even though 31,000 New Yorkers signed a petition to get me on that ballot. WCBS, I think a guy named Tim Shell, I think is his name. He there has decided, nope, Larry Sharp doesn't deserve to be on there. He's decided that the establishment is all that matters. This is what I'm up against. It's not going to stop me. I'm still taking the hill. But it's yet another obstacle we have to get over. So if you're a libertarian or you're hearing something that, um, that uh, you think should be heard, then you should probably... Uh, maybe tweet storm. What's his name again at CBS? Uh, WCBS Radio eight eighty Radio. Uh, it's I think his name is Tim Sheld. So this is a yes. radio debate. Yes. Well, it's going to be televised also now. Okay. It will right. be t- it'll be both televised and radio. It will be, be both. Okay. So yeah, again, and they're just deciding. No, we don't want. Don't, don't get me wrong. There are three other people. It should be me. It should also be the Green Party and also the yeah. Sand Party. They should all be there. But this is the norm, and we put up against this. We're up against this constantly. And here's the the worst part. With all of this, we're still growing, and they're still going down. That's that's the sad part. They they don't they don't they don't realize they're on a sinking ship, mm-hmm. or maybe they don't even care. If people want to donate, how do they donate? LarrySharp.com/slash/donate. And to be clear, if some of you want to give forty five thousand dollars, you can't. The maximum <laughs> is forty four thousand by New York State law. So if you, I know well, someone's going, I want to give Larry forty five thousand dollars. Sorry, yeah. you can't do it. Forty four. You only can give forty four thousand. That's all you can give. Wow. Okay. So yes. LarrySharp dot uh, com. That's with an e at the end of sharp. Um, I want I want to talk to you about some of the issues uh, of the day and and how we solve some of the things like for instance healthcare. Yes. How do you solve healthcare? We'll do that coming up in uh, just a second. Uh, stand by. On television tonight is tonight Michael Reckenwald. Tonight, Michael Reckenwald from uh, New York University, a fascinating guy. If you haven't met him yet, 
You will tonight, and it will be uh, something you don't forget. A guy who used to write white papers for the Communist Party who now says, wait a minute, democratic socialists scare the hell out of me. We're with Larry Sharp, um, gubernatorial candidate uh, for uh, for New York. Uh, he is a libertarian and uh, is making waves in New York. And he's a voice that you should hear because his his policies are different than the Republican and the Democrat. And I believe they're they're very workable in a in an era when we are changing everything, when technology has changed everything. Why we're still looking at a system uh, you know, that feels like the old Soviet si- style centralized system is beyond me. But um, Larry, let me let me just run down a couple of things. Um, you are if you are governor of the state of New York, you are dealing with the big banks mm-hmm. uh, and the big banks. Uh, Cuomo is pushing them around quite a bit, especially when it comes to the Second Amendment. Uh, and trying to deplatform uh, people. If you do any business with with gun manufacturers or gun dealers, totally he- unethical for a governor to impede business. Period. No ifs, no ands, no buts. If I don't like an industry or I don't like something, I've ever had to say it if I want to. I have freedom of speech. But when it comes to being governor, I should be the opposite. I should be the facilitator in chief. I should be the marketer in chief. Not, not his majesty, an emperor who decides these people are evil because I deem it so. That's the wrong answer. That's what he's doing. The reality of it is he's well, also- He's not only doing that. He's also threatening another group of business people that you'll be in trouble with the state if you do business with these people. Yes, absolutely. And what winds up happening more than, more than, more than often is the normal thing, which is the small guy gets hurt here. Because big business will always find a way around his edicts, mm-hmm. right? They always, they find a way around it. But how about the guy who, say, for example, just wants insurance for his firearm? Now we can't get it. There's no way that the individual, and there are at least 4 million um, gun owners in New York State, if not more. Well, how are they going to get insurance now? When, the, when, when insurance companies won't do business in New York State anymore. For, for any kind of firearm. But that's the plan, isn't it? That's the problem, yes. And that's the unethical part. That's the issue, right? And this is, you're making New York State residents criminals overnight. Not just that. If it's a gun violation in New York State, it's by default a violent felony. By default, no matter what you do. That's how it works in New York State. You're turning millions of New Yorkers into violent felons overnight. And we wonder if why you we're have losing. A gun, if you have a gun? If, if you have a firearm that is not SAFE Act compliant. SAFE Act was passed in 2013. And the SAFE Act said that certain aspects of a firearm make it legal or illegal. Mm-hmm. Literally what he decided, I think this piece of plastic is evil. So this piece of plastic, which is now evil, which, by the way, you purchased the day before completely legally, totally above board. You are now a violent felon. It was so bad that the cops said, wait a minute. Now we're all violent felons, too. I'm not joking. It's a true story. They had to now revamp the law because all the cops were felons overnight. <laughs> yes. All the cops were. So they had to revamp the law because of that. And now the worst part is now if you're a retired cop, once you retire, well, now you're a felon again because you're no longer an active duty cop. This is, this is where we are in New York State. This is horribly bad. The, the, the answer is and always the same thing. It is all about projecting how he is helping the little guy. Mm-hmm. Constantly he will project, I care about the little guy. But in every single uh, aspect, he fails. 
I'm a businessman. If I lost 100,000 customers every single year for eight years, <laughs> I should be fired. Mm-hmm. That's what he's done. We've lost over a million since he's ascended the throne. Over a million. That's People a problem. Leaving, New, leaving York. New York State. Over a million. Over 100,000 every year for eight years. The total is over a million. Look, they're voting with their feet. We right? did. It, yes, it's so bad. It is so bad that uh, Rick Scott, the governor of Florida, was teasing and said, thank you, Cuomo, because all the retirees we have are going to Florida, mm-hmm. and they have pensions that New York State residents are paying for still, and these pensions now aren't being spent in New York State. They're being spent in Florida. We are literally, we are literally writing checks to Florida every single month. Horrible. That's how bad it is. Yes. So uh, let's take pensions now. Sure. Pensions are... It's a ticking time bomb. Yes. There's no way to pay for it. Yep. You've, you're going to break all of the promises to yes. people who work their whole life and were promised a lie. Yep. What do you do? You see it here in Texas with your police force. Oh, yeah. You see it right here now. Here in Dallas. Yes, yep. here in Dallas. You yep. see it already. Already happening. I bring yep. it up all the time. Yep. In New York State, we are the most unionized state in the entire nation. Mm-hmm. So pensions are critical. Right now, pensions are about 15 to 16% of our budget, and our budget is $170 billion. It's double Florida, and Florida has more people than us. Wow. Yes. Florida's about $85 billion, and they have more people than us, and we have $170 billion budget. Our budget's massive, and it's getting bigger. The budget's getting bigger, and so are the percentages of the, of the pensions. But on top of that, uh, New York State has about a $300 billion debt and about a 4 to $5 billion deficit. So it's bad, 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 anyway you add. Now, people always tell me, but Larry, the pension fund is good. They're right. The fund itself is doing relatively well. Some of the upstate pensions are doing very well. Some of the city ones are a disaster, but overall, it's doing well. They don't realize it's being also funded by our tax base, our budget that keeps putting money into it. The problem isn't the fund right now. That's great. The problem is the actual budget. At one point, it gets so big that we simply can't pay it anymore, as you're seeing in Dallas. And my response I get all the time is, but Larry, it's in the Constitution. Yeah, I, I get that. Ask Detroit, right? Ask Puerto mm-hmm. Rico, right? Ask Venezuela. Mm-hmm. It was all legal for them too. When there's no money, it doesn't get funded. When it doesn't get funded, that eventually will collapse. If that collapses, if our pension fund collapses in New York State, we become Somalia overnight. I don't want to become Somalia overnight. I want to stop that. I'm the only guy talking about negotiating our pensions into the right air, which is some type of 401k, 403b, something like that. And I'm going to negotiate with every single union that will take forever, I know. That's why I say it's a four-year plan. It's a four-year plan to make it so that New York State is paying either a flat fee and or a flat percentage that is sustainable. Because the issue we have is we have a lot of people who have pensions who are no longer paying in anymore. Mm-hmm. So we just simply have to keep paying them mm-hmm. until they don't need pensions anymore. So we have to do that also. Used to be like 10 firefighters supporting one. Now it's one supporting 10 that's firefighters. That's correct. I think actually we're supporting four. From the, I think that's right. I'm not sure. But I some, was it, making the number Yeah, I think, up, it's something, but, I think yeah. we're supporting three or four. Uh, so, yeah, it's bad. So now we have to make that change. And the funny thing is people are attacking me saying, Lyle wants to get rid of our pensions. I'm like, I'm the only guy trying to keep them. I'm the only one talking about reality. I'm talking about what's actually happening. If you have a, if you're ready for a pension now, it's ten or fifteen years from now. It's probably not going to be there for you. But why deal with that? I mean, it's human nature. Why deal with that if the two on the other side, GOP and the Democrats, are saying, "Oh, he's an extremist. He's he's trying to spook you. Your pensions are fine." It's human nature to follow them. Agreed. But I have a problem, Glenn. I care. I have a problem. I'm human. I have a problem. I want people to stay in my state. 
I want people to stay in my state because if they don't, my state's going to collapse and I have to move. And I don't want to move. I'm born and raised in New York State. My family and friends are in New York State. I love my state. People love New York. They hate New York's government. New York State is very special. It has the largest city in the entire nation. It has an amazing waterfall Niagara Falls. It has mountains as cool as Colorado. It has farmland as cool as, yes, I'm a New Yorker. Yes, as cool as Colorado. Sorry, yes. No. Farmland (laughs) as cool as the Midwest. It has amazing rivers and lakes and everything you can imagine in New York State is there. It's a beautiful, diverse state. And we're destroying it because we're letting one city run the entire state. Most of my, my idea is about happiness, but the other part is about decentralization. It's about letting counties be counties and regions be regions and towns be towns, right? People upstate tend to get upset with people in New York City saying, well, they're running it and they're bad and cut them off. If you ran your own county, you wouldn't care. And that's what I want. Mm-hmm. Let people in New York City be New York City. Let people isn't in Rochester the, be Rochester. Isn't that, though, what we're, we're debating now over the uh, Electoral College? Yep. The only reason why we're debating the Electoral College is because it's the original debate. I don't want New York City yes. to tell me in the middle of the country how to live my life. Yes. I don't let San Francisco be San Francisco. Absolutely. You poop on the streets. That's fine. Yes. But we're different here. Yes. And maybe you want to visit them once in a while and, right. and look at the poop. It's right. fine. I'm good with <laughs> right. that. Whatever. Right. Whatever your thing is. And they should be allowed to do to their city, their county, what they want to do. A hundred percent true. And it's not happening. And the issue is we're getting more and more centralized control. It happens in any large organization. As I told you, I'm a business guy, right? And I'm the guy who I will come in sometimes and try to help businesses and fix them, make things better. And the last thing I say is iron fist. It's the last thing I say. I hear it all the time. I go to a, a business owner and he goes, my, my leaders aren't doing what they, what they should do. I can't get them to innovate. I can't get them to, to take, to, you know, take charge mm-hmm. of things. And the last thing I say is iron fist. I say, give them actually more freedom. Here's what I know. It's, it's literally an equation. Personal freedom plus transparency plus accountability equals innovation. That happens all the time. So you give the people a bit more freedom, let the leaders take charge. Some will make mistakes, but as long as you're transparent, you learn from them. You become humbled by them, which is mm-hmm. fine. We all make mistakes. But then which of the ones who simply want to make a mistake blame someone else? Now you see that. These are leaders you don't need. Which are the ones who will not make any mistakes? They're doing nothing. Those are the leaders you don't need. You need the ones to get up, try, do well, hit a couple home runs, strike out sometimes, get better, become humbled, and become better leaders. In the long run, that's how you make a better organization. We don't have that now. Larry is uh, going to join me for a uh, podcast. You'll hear uh, about 90 minutes uninterrupted, uh, and we'll put that out on Saturday. Um, Larry Sharp is his name, and uh, you you need to to listen to him. I I have a feeling uh, if he doesn't win New York, we're going to be seeing him uh, again, uh, perhaps uh, elsewhere. Uh, but he is um, he's worth your time to listen to. And if you're in New York, consider voting for I can't imagine. I can't imagine what would stop you because it's not working as it is. But that's just me. Larry Sharp, S H A R P E Larry Sharp dot com is how you can get involved, uh, make a donation or read more about him. Larry, thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Again, he'll be on with us uh Saturday for the uh, podcast. All right, I want to tell you a little bit about American financing. American financing would remind you that uh, while the the sales have slowed on homes heading into fall, 
not for first-time home buyers. Actually, they account now for 55% of the mortgages that are originating. And to keep the first-time home buyers entering the market, you need a lender that can really listen to you, get the right loan, and have it happen quickly. Process that loan fast. American Financing. They offer dedicated mortgage consultants and an in-house underwriting team to secure financing for your dream home. They have been in business since 1999, have a ton of uh, online reviews that are stellar from Google and BBB and Zillow and everybody else. They work for you. They are not on commission with the banks. And that is, that's huge. People say all the time, oh, I hope they give me a loan. Give it to you. They're selling you a loan. And you're going to pay through the nose. You need somebody who's not on commission from the banks looking for the best deal for you. It's American Financing. You'll find them at 800-906-2440. 800-906-2440. You're looking to finance a home? AmericanFinancing.net. American Financing Corporation, NMLS 182334. There is so much uh, that we have. Um, I want to educate myself on a little bit more before I present to you, but there is a global dollar, dollar shortage. Uh, and I know that sounds crazy, but all of a sudden, when you understand this one thing, all of a sudden, everything starts to make sense. I'm suffering from a localized dollar shortage. <laughs> Are you? Uh, yeah. yeah. So yeah. if you could help me out with this that. Will, this will make this worse. Okay. And it has everything to do with our spending also. Uh, new reports out show that Donald Trump does not have any intention of easing on China mm-hmm. and things are not, not real good. Um, have you heard the latest about global warming? No. Oh yeah. You need to know about this. This yeah, is important. Sure. Uh, so they are, uh, global warming is going to make species go ex- extinct as you know. Well, of course, um, of course. And so, uh, through the global warming from 1970 to today, there's been uh, a big change in the moose population of New Hampshire and Maine. Oh my gosh, are we losing moose? Uh, well, we went from we had 50, only 50 moose in 1970. Oh my gosh! Uh, now we have uh, between 70 and 80 thousand moose in the two areas. So we've gone from 50, not 50 thousand, but 50 to almost 80 thousand in the two areas. And that, of course, was through this huge period of global warming mm-hmm. that we all know about. Now, here's the issue, Glenn. Mm-hmm. And this is why you, you'll say, well, that means it's doing the opposite. No. No. Global warming is at fault for this population boom, which <laughs> which yeah. is at fault for a tick boom, because now they're saying there's tens of thousands of ticks on all oh, these on each goodness. moose. Oh, and the, the global warming is at fault for that, which... which? which could start killing mooses in the future. So no way. So these extra ticks <laughs> are killing. <laughs> you went from fifty to eighty thousand. Yes, but the ticks are going to kill them now. But now, and they say they found like seventy dead mooses. Meese, meese. I think it's meese. I'm <laughs> pretty sure it it's meese. <laughs> they found like seventy, or and now they think up to hundred and seventy may have died because there's too many ticks on them because of all the global warming. Mm. After the the population has exploded from fifty to eighty thousand, mm. this is a New York Times story. But there's seventy that have been found dead. Right? It's an I mean, epidemic. Wouldn't you say overall, however, the environment for the meeses? <laughs> It has improved? No, they have to live with ticks. And they're hot. 
they're wearing a fur coat all the time or they're cold and they don't have thick enough fur. Mm. One of the two. Okay. One of the two. Uh, uh, by the way, the, uh, the 5,000 people that are now making their way to our border, what are the odds that they arrive just in time for the election? Mm. I don't know. Uh, is it Donald Trump's birthday? I, I, can't, I can't figure out what the point of this is. It seems like if you wanted to empower uh, immigration hardliners, there would be absolutely no better way of doing it than this caravan. They want to empower Hispanics. They want to ignite. They need the Hispanic base to rise up and go I, to the polls. I'm sure That's they do. That's exactly what it it's is. A, it's so a they're using these people. They're oh, just absolutely. Using people. I mean, just like they did, just like they did with the Kavanaugh case. It's a gift to Republicans, though. This is a gift. Anyone who's moderate on this issue, I mean, you can't see this as being the right no, way to go. You're going to see. You're going to see the, you're other gonna side. See the horrible scrambling at the border, and you think people are going to stay at home? No way. No way. Glenn Beck, Mercury.